Hi, and welcome back to the Utojua Hujui podcast. Now, a quick word before we get in. Your girl, Aileen, has a little bit of a potty mouth, which means she does not mind her language and she speaks the fluent French, <laughs> um, which is all to say that I understand that some people are a little bit uncomfortable with this language. So here's just a warning for you. If, however, you are not uncomfortable and you would like to learn about the world around you and capitalism and colonialism and just like... All this fun shit with a dazzling, brilliant, and funny host, if I do say so myself. Um, Keep listening. Hi, ho, hello, and welcome back to the Utojo Hujui podcast with your baby girl in residence, Aileen. How have y'all been? How have you guys been doing? Um, I've actually been trying to record this episode for like three or four days. I just... I just, for want of a better explanation, could not get it up to record this episode. A lot of changes are going on in my life right now, and it just feels like I am a teacup in a storm, and I'm literally trying to keep my bearings together. Um, So I just didn't have the emotional wherewithal to record this episode. And today I found it. Um, I also think that today I could just use the distraction and I kind of want to feel productive. So here we are. Um, Hi, y'all. How are you? I hope your December is going a lot better than mine. I hope your December is Decembering properly, properly. Because right now, y'all, I don't want to get into it, but like, things are thick. Things are so thick that Megan Thee Stallion would be shook. Things are thick. Um, But that's not what we're here to talk about today. Today, we are here to talk about, if you've read the introduction or the little bloop-de-bloop thing that I do for each episode, we're talking about a man called Bruce McKenzie. But before we get there, you know what kind of podcast this is. So what am I drinking today? Okay, so today I am drinking a lovely creature gold green tea and mint with just a hint of rum. Um, I just wanted to... I don't know, go back to basics today. Um, And I hope you know that this is a drink-friendly podcast. Please feel free to make yourself a little something-something as you listen to this podcast or like are walking around or just vibing to life. Please, the more, the merrier. Now, as I said today, we are talking about Bruce McKenzie, Kenya's only white cabinet secretary and a spy for the British, South African and possibly Israeli governments. Um, This was like he was a spy while he was a cabinet secretary or a CS, as the rumor goes. And the reason why I wanted to talk about him for the last episode of the year or maybe even the podcast as a whole, because like. I'll talk about this at the very end, but like the reason why I wanted to talk about him is because his presence on the first independent government of Kenya says a lot about African history. Because explain to me why Mackenzie as a white guy was CS for lands and livestock or, or, or whatever the fuck, but he was definitely CS for like land settlement and distribution. Um, why was a white person given control over a resource that the Europeans had stolen and that inspired the, the the fight for independence and freedom like i just i don't understand how how as an independent independence government you were able to square that circle not only amongst yourselves but for your people who had suffered the indignities of being dispossessed and therefore his presence says a lot about the 
bargains, the, 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 the push and pull that African governments needed to engage in with European powers, particularly their former colonizers, if they wanted to succeed in this new international space. Um, so let's get into this man and what he may or may not have stood for. Now, 1st January 1919, Mackenzie was born in South Africa's Natal province. And we're going to rush through his early life simply because like, I don't have a lot of information about it. Um, and I really did not have time to go to the archives, although that would be a really cute date. Um, hint, hint. Um, anyway, one assumes that Mackenzie grew up well and healthy. Otherwise, he would not have lived to be part of our independence government. One assumes he grew up without major health difficulties. Otherwise, I would, I would have been able to find them if they were that, you know, uh, significant in the development of his life. One also assumes he was educated because he was white in South Africa. And these are assumptions, or rather these are the only assumptions I am comfortable making, despite the fact that I want to make so many others, specifically assumptions based on where he grew up. Like by 1919, when, when Mackenzie was born, apartheid animated much of South African policy towards black people, even if it wasn't called apartheid until 1952. By 1920, black people had to pay a poll tax if they wanted to vote. The state was pursuing a segregationist housing policy. And in the Natal province, where Mackenzie's family grew up and like made their roots, specifically that province had a council that had passed three orders that limited the right of appeal to black people which basically means that like if you are going to have an issue in court you know how you have how you have a high, high court court of appeal supreme court right what you're basically being told if you don't have the right of appeal is that whatever judgment the high court comes to that's it that's final even if there might have been procedural issues which there probably were if it was a case involving somebody who's black even if there was a miscarriage of justice which again probably existed because you're dealing with an apartheid state um you could not appeal it and which means that you could not access justice right now, this was just order one of three, as I said. So now the the other two orders, um, the Natal Province Council passed. Um, the second one stripped Indians of their ability and right to participate in local politics. And the third one gave the government the right to restrict ownership to the on the basis of race. This is the political and social climate that Mackenzie grew up in. And I can't imagine that it didn't have an impact on his outlook on life. I just can't. Um, but I also can't widely speculate as to what that impact might have been. Um, it could have been what we expect, or it could have been a complete rejection of apartheid ideology. We just don't know. I mean, it could have even, it could have even bred in Mackenzie this understanding of black suffering and, and this understanding of like white power in relation to that suffering and like when to jump ship because Mackenzie was one of the few colonizers who when Kenya was fighting for independence jumped ship real quick like he was just <clears throat> I'm on your side now right and maybe that was the lesson he learned from watching apartheid South Africa like I don't I, I, I we just don't know anyway um, when World War II broke out in 1939 Mackenzie was 20 he signed up to join the South African Air Force when World War II broke out. And now this Air Force participated in campaigns in Northern and Eastern Africa. They also assisted the British Royal Air Force or RAF with rescue missions and attacked submarines and ships in the Indian Ocean. Shortly after joining, Mackenzie was seconded to the RAF and the Royal Australian Air Force. Here he saw action in North Africa. He commanded squadrons of planes, and in 1946, a year after the war was over, Mackenzie left South Africa for Kenya. He was only 27 years old. 
Now, Mackenzie left for Kenya after World War II because Kenya was the shit. Um, um, Ken, like, things were going quite well for Kenya during World War II. I'm quoting from Charles, Charles Hornsby, um, and I quote, The war was the trigger for fundamental change in Kenya's economy and society, beginning a 20-year boom for the colony. The government supported agricultural exports in every way, including subsidies for settlers and forced African labor. Both settler and African agriculture blossomed with the need to feed allies' armies abroad. Between 1942 and 1952, the output of large farms doubled, driven by mechanization, high and fixed world prices, and bulk export deals. After the war, British involvement became more active, and grants, loans, and investments poured into the colony. This period saw the fastest formal sector growth in Kenya's history, estimated at 13% a year between 1947 and 1954, end quote. Now, many of us can't fathom what a 13% economic G uh, GDP growth looks like. Um, so please feel free to correct my math. But like, it would be if, for example, like in one year, Kenya's GDP went from like 100 billion to all of a sudden, they are now 113, 114 billion shillings in the span of a year. It doesn't seem like that much money, but holy fuck, that is a lot of money to have like grown the economy, developed it, what have you, right? Um, now, all this is to say is that Mackenzie followed money to Kenya. Um, when he got here, he went to Nakuru and became a prominent farmer. Now, if you remember from episode two, like in 2021, somewhere in one of the first episodes I ever did, we talked about how Nakuru was part of the White Highlands, aka the Happy Valley, where the white people got up to a bunch of shit. Um, please go listen to that episode. It's a bit crusty. I might redo it, but just please have fun and enjoy. Um, now, one of Mackenzie's properties in Nakuru is an 1,800-acre ranch called Malu. It is deep in the heart of Naivasha. And in 2015, when it was put up for sale, it was sold for a whopping 4.5 billion shillings, which is roughly... Oh my goodness, my math is going to fail me on this. $45 million, which is a lot of money in Kenya. A lot of money. Um, and the fact that it sold for that much made it the most expensive property on sale in the country in that year. Now, in spite of the instability that would rock Kenya after 1946, Mackenzie was able to flourish and thrive as a farmer in Kenya. Um, but equally, as he was, you know, getting that back, securing his paper, you know, getting that money, 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 money. Um, in Kenya, there was a lot of socio-political and economic tension, specifically among peoples of color, or communities of color. And I, by that, I mean the Africans and the Indians. After World War II, African and Indian Kenyans became increasingly vocal about their demands for equal treatment, better working conditions, political representation, and eventually independence. Um, the wealth that Kenya was producing, that 13% economic growth, was not being shared equally. Even though London encouraged colonial governments to invest in social welfare programs that would benefit everyone, the white people on the ground, the colonizers, just said, bitch, no, we made this money, why should we give it to them? Without, you know, completely understanding that the only reason why they have this money is because number one you dispossess local people and number two these local people are working in indentured fucking servitude for you earning fucking pennies and whenever they have good land you then move them away from that land because oh we as africans lack the like the ingenuity to develop our own shit fuck you anyway sorry i've been holding that in for a while <laughs> I've, been, I've been really trying to hold that in for a while anyway um tldr um the 
colony of Kenya was making a lot of money for the white settlers. The colonial, the governments in London were like, hey, my guy, maybe you want to share this wealth. And the colonizers were like, no, we don't think we will. <laughs> um, so naturally, people were pissed off and the instability kept growing and growing and growing. And instead of meeting this instability with compassion and, and, and a modicum of empathy, uh, the white settlers, you know, cracked down and cracked down hard as we know the period of emergency from 1952. Um, the term period of emergency by the way is, is just a fancy cover-up um what what it was in essence is that the british colonial government declared war but did not want to call it a war because london would not fund a war and the international community after having you know declared its un unrelenting support for the principles of self-determination we're going to look at england being like you are declaring war on a people that want freedom from you okay did we not just fight a war about that we're not going to support you hence why they called it a period of emergency because they didn't want to they, like, they didn't want it to be a bad look for the british colonial government anyway um now we don't know what Mackenzie was up to during this time between 1952 and 1960 during the period of emergency we just know he was out there getting his bag we do know that in 1957 he joined LegCo and LegCo was the African Legislative Council it was how the British government tried to like bring in African support and African um, investment into determining policies and, and governance for the colony. The only problem is when it was first uh, instituted or created, the first African representative for the LegCo was a white man, was a white Scottish missionary whose name currently escapes me. And it is just, I lack the words. I lack, I, I just, I lack words. Um, at some point, I guess Mackenzie must have figured out which way the leaves were blowing because he sided with Africans on the question of self-governance immediately um, to the point where he was part of the team that traveled with like Njonjo and Mboya and like all these great independence heroes and well, quite frankly, complicated independence heroes. He was part of the team that traveled with them to the UK to negotiate Kenya's independence in a series of conferences. And these are called the Lancaster Conferences. Now, in case you're unaware, they were a series of meetings held in 1960, 1962, and 1963 between the colonizers and the colonized to negotiate independence, our new constitution, and settle important questions. Now, in Kenya, one of the questions the Lancaster, Lancaster Conferences was established to settle was the question of land ownership. Unfortunately, many of the questions that the Lancaster Conference was designed to answer would not be settled. Even right now, we're still debating land ownership and land redistribution and settlement in Kenya. And it's been, I think we're coming on to 60 years next year. So it's, it, TLDR is a very complex discussion. Now we need to return to Mackenzie. Between 1959 and 1960, Mackenzie also served as a minister for agriculture. In 1962, he was part of the Kenyan delegation traveling to Lancaster II. At Lancaster II, the framework for self-governance was negotiated. But Mackenzie also wasn't in Europe for that reason alone. Like rumor has it, this is where his shady, shady, oh, shady behavior began. According to Le Levin Opio, before Lancaster II, Mackenzie, Tom Boya, Justice and Constitutional Affairs, minister and James Gishuru, later finance minister, also traveled to West Germany. They went to court international support for Kenya's independence and built connections outside of the UK, which is brilliant, brilliant politics. But, <laughs> but Mackenzie also went in his on his own little Kaditua, where he uh, apparently tried to recruit German strippers for his nightclub in Nairobi, which you know what? <laughs> 
fair play to you, Mackenzie, for trying to really kill as many birds with as with as little stones as possible. Um, Anyway, Kenya got her independence and elections were held in 1963. Again, I am fast forwarding through Kenyan history. This is not going to be a blow by blow of like immediately like independence Kenyan politics. As interesting as I find them, number one, I am deeply unqualified to talk about it. And number two, I have not done enough research to even begin to talk about it. So we're just going to speed through it. And I'm very sorry. Um, anyway, Kenya got her independence and elections uh, were held in 1963. Kanu won with, sorry, Kanu is the Kenya African National Unity Party, I think. Kanu is, it is the party for Kenya. Um, won with an overwhelming majority. Um, over Once the elections were over, Kanu used the 12 specially elected seats to bring Europeans into parliament and into the government. These included Mackenzie. Thereafter, President Kenyatta appointed Mackenzie as a minister for agriculture and animal husbandry. At the time, white settler agriculture was the backbone of Kenyan agriculture and therefore the backbone of Kenya's wealth. At the time, 80% of our exports came from white settlers' farms and they employed most of the workers on the in the country. On this basis alone, it was a smart political move to appoint Mackenzie. He was there to appease the white settlers who were feeling high-key anxious about post-independent Kenya. Like, this is why Mackenzie was brought in. Like, it says a lot that he was not elected by any single Kenyan, that he was imposed upon Kenyans by the government because they had to think about the bigger picture, which is that, number one, we can't fuck with the money, which is which is why we need to find a way to appease the white people. Number two, we can't fuck with the former colonizers because we are still a tiny, tiny fish in a very, very big pond and we don't want to get eaten up. Therefore, if we have a white person handling... Um, you know, Kenya's agriculture, Kenya's wealth, then that might uh, calm or alleviate the anxieties of the, of the former colonizers. I mean, you're still people pleasing, but this was something they had to do. Um, so Mackenzie, as the Minister for Agriculture and Animal Husbandry, was also the one in charge of redistributing and settling the question of Kenya's land. Now, at the time, there were two proposals for how to deal with Kenya's land problem. Proposal one came from Jomo Kenyatta, and it was I, it was what I like to call willing buyer, willing seller. It was about saying, let the past be the past, let bygones be bygones. Um, we will buy the land that the colonizers want to sell, and we will make sure that Africans have access to credit to facilitate these purchases. Now, that's proposal one. Proposal two came from Jaramogi Oginga Odinga. He argued, and this is, he argued, why the fuck should we have to buy back the land that y'all stole from us? Why? Why can't we just take it back and then redistribute this wealth? I don't understand why we should have to coddle you when you stole our land. Um, as you could tell, <laughs> I obviously agree, or my heart goes out to Odinga's proposal um, for no other reason than that you stole my land. Why should I have to pay to get it back when you stole my land? Now, 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 you could argue, you could really, really argue that what you're paying for is not the land itself, but the improvements that these colonizers have made upon the land. To which I will respond, thank you so much for fucking with my traditional agricultural systems and values, but I'm not paying for that. Or I would also argue that I will still not have to pay because you made improvements upon stolen land. The original sin cancels out everything else you've been able to do good about it. Because that original sin has tainted everything about your actions. 
And these were like the two different arguments that Mackenzie had to balance and negotiate and figure out a way to to merge and like kiss um, while he was trying to redistribute Kenya's land because you know he was the one in charge and like it was not a good look to have a white person redistributing land it just it just wasn't so he was very cognizant of that or rather I feel he would have been very cognizant on that. Um, as Minister for Agriculture, uh, Mackenzie went with Jomo's first plan. Um, it was the only way to not fuck with the money. And it was the only way to let let the past be the past. And um, this is something that I've been struggling with as an aside for a long time. Just like, how is it that the independence government was so willing to forgive and forget? And it wasn't easy, but it was something that they felt needed to be done if they wanted to keep Kenya prosperous. And I guess you could argue Kenya's comparative wealth in the region is 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 a testament, is 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 vindication for the choices that they made. But it came at a lot of it came at a very high cost if you don't think about it. Um so anyway, Mackenzie went with Jomo's plan and um he proposed something in 1960, 1961 with a very, very small vision. Um his plan concerned the highest quality land and was based on a large farm model, which would never meet the political demand for land. But it did contain the final bit of the final deal, which was that British loans would be used to buy out white farmers. These loans would be paid off by African farmers. And with this final like financing mechanism intact, Mackenzie went back to the drawing board. To to figure out now that we know how people are going to afford the land now we know people are going to pay back these loans how are we going to redistribute the land itself when he came back he had a plan that he gisheru minister for finance jackson sorry jackson and angane minister for lands had worked on together i'm quoting now from the truth and justice reconciliation commission report and i quote Mackenzie spearheaded the design of two types of resettlement schemes. The first, a yeoman scheme in which large farms would be created for experienced farmers and were to be interspersed with European farms. For that category of farms, recipients would contribute 500 sterling pounds. The second was a peasant scheme designed to create small farms, which recipients would contribute 100 sterling pounds. The peasant scheme category was planned for establishment in the borderlands between native reserves and the highlands. To capacitate Africans to make payments for farms in two categories, the British government would, with contribution for the World Bank, advanced a loan of 7.5 million sterling pounds to the incoming government of Kenya. End quote. Now, to explain or to help you get your bearings as to how much money the British government actually loaned to Kenya, um, 7.5 million sterling pounds is roughly 204 million pounds today. 500 sterling pounds is roughly 13,000 pounds today and a hundred sterling pounds is roughly 271 sorry 2721 thousand pounds today returning to the quote and i quote the government established an agricultural settlement fund trust whose trustees were mainly james kishuru jackson angaine and bruce mackenzie who in liaison with the british controlled the fund into which all settlement loans were paid a central land board with regional representation was established to take responsibility for land purchase but it was chaired by a britain thus ensuring only nominal autonomy end quote now, I think what this quote is trying to get at, but it's not being quite clear about it, um, is that despite the fact that Kenya was still independent, you still had British interference and influence controlling how our resources were being distributed. You still had that 
white hand um, controlling what went where and when and how much it was it's sickening but and but i feel or rather i understand why the independence government felt like this was the price they needed to pay not just because of you know the prospect of economic potential and economic growth but i also think that around this time you should remember that kenya was not the only person becoming the only country gaining independence there were so many others gain, gaining independence at the same time that every that like by the time kenya was coming along she already had models to look up to um and what we were trying to avoid in particular was a french kind of pettiness that we weren't entirely sure the british were above doing and what I mean to say is that, as you know, France told its colonies that if you don't, like, you know, keep your money in our central bank, if you don't continue to work trade with us, if you don't continue to prioritize us and our interests in your independent nations, we will take everything we have invested in your country. And we mean everything. Like, there's even a story of um, French decolonization efforts in Guinea. So what happened was the um, the French are, um, had given Guinea a choice, like either decolonize with us or decolonize without us. And Guinea said, uh, it's okay, thank you so much for everything, but we're good, we, we got it from here. And France re completely removed its entire support from the country, which brought it to the verge of economic collapse. Like, it only was able to recover as a nation and remain in dependence because of what Ghana did. Like, Ghana stepped in to help Guinea. Now, Guinea's success not only encouraged other African nations within the Francophone Africa to gain independence, but it also asked them to stop and consider the consequences of, the, of that independence. And maybe think about playing ball with France. Because they removed everything! So, and that's exactly what Kenya was trying to avoid because they still knew that the British still had a lot of control, a lot of influence over our economic system. They were trying to prevent an economic collapse. The only problem is, is that that attempt at self-preservation came at the cost of our national sanity, right? Because you still have a British person dis deciding who gets what land without taking into account the historical injustices, not only perpetuated by British colonial rule, but those that pre-existed, like um, um, the colonial rule, like I'm talking about the, the, the land issues in the coast and how, and how the indigenous people of the coast have always been historically dispossessed and marginalized when it comes to land. Um, all this is to say, Mackenzie had a difficult job uh, ahead of him, but the man understood who butted his bread. He understood what hand fed him. And he understood, it wasn't the colonizers that fed me. No, 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 the colonizers might be who I need to keep happy, but they're not who gives me my food. No, 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 no. The person that has given me power, the person that has buttered my bread, is Jomo Kenyatta and the Kikuyu Mafia. Sorry, the Kiambu Mafia, right? This understanding of explains why Mackenzie's land reforms focused on the distribution of land in the Rift Valley or central Kenya and not in the coast, which has, as I said, been the victim of historic and centuries-old land injustice, the kind of injustice that predated even British colonial fuckery. And yet, both of Mackenzie's schemes for the yeoman and the peasant farmer ignored this kind of land injustice. But it still achieved its purpose, kind of. Um, in 1960, there were 2,680 mixed colonizer-owned holdings. By 1965, when the first batch of funds ran out, there were only 1,100 farms left, a 55% decrease in five years. 
But who these lands were sold to is also very important. Because of Mackenzie's actions and because of his control over the land settlement and redistribution process in post-colonial Kenya, he facilitated or ushered in the birth of Kenya's new post-colonial elite. According to Charles Hornsby, and I quote, over a decade, one-sixth of settler farms were sold intact to emerging African elites, end quote. So of the 1,500 farms sold, um, 250 went to a handful of families, the Kenyatas, the Moys, the Kainanges, the Mwendwas, the Odingas, the, the, the Kianos, the Jamkariukis, the Ngays. These families continued to dominate Kenyan politics and business. And this domination was enabled by the wealth they built or maybe stole <laughs> during this period. Um, the leaders of these families were able to use their involvement in the business of government to their benefit. This involvement meant that they could interfere with the land redistribution program, which in turn meant that they could stop the breaking up of large profitable farms and ensure that they were the ones that got those farms. It also meant that they could ensure that they got preferential access to credits from banks and creditors. They got preferential prices of land, which meant that they could buy land for under market values. And to be honest, fair. Oh, no, not because of the corruption, like not at all, because corruption is always bad, but because they saw the opportunity and they took it like that is the only thing i can be like you know what fair um because while i was researching the story i i've been trying this thing like whenever i'm researching history i try to put myself as an individual in the position of that historical figure that i'm studying and i ask myself given all that you know would you not would you behave in the same way and to be honest i would not know how how i would behave because i'm not in that situation like you never know how you're going to behave in a tricky situation until you're put into that situation but number two i also understood why the colonial elite behaved the way that they did like they had grown up in a government that did not secure their interests they had grown up in a government that they had seen was so nakedly corrupt that what other models did they have but to emulate what they saw, number one. Number two, on the question of securing their interests, when you grow up or exist in a system that demonstrates an inability or a reluctance or an outright refusal to cater to your interests, um, you figure out a way to secure your own interests, even if it is through like means of crime, um, even if it is through corruption, because you don't trust the government to step in and have your back. And I fully I suspect that a lot of these post-colonial um, independence leaders or the new colonial post-colonial elite, like these guys knew better than anyone how shitty the government was in securing African interests and securing their own interests. And so they did what they needed to do so that they could never be fucked with again. And I get it. I, I get it. I, I disagree with it. <laughs> I wish they had thought about it long term. I wish they had thought about other people like I really do. I get it. Um, I, I, I also just vehemently disagree with it. Um, now back to Mackenzie. Mackenzie allowed all of this to happen. He allowed and enabled the rise of the Kenyatas, the Moys, the Koinanges, the Karaokis, the Odingas. He was there. He had a hand in it all, I think. Um, but he also enriched himself in the process to the point where even the British were watching everything fly down and were like, bro what is you doing if i am giving you to the modern day equivalent of 204 million pounds to buy land to give back to africans and y'all are taking it for yourselves 
why am I giving you money? Should I should just stop giving you money. So around like 1965, 1966, the British government said, we're, we're not going we're not gonna to give you any more money because very clearly you're not using it for the purpose for which it was given. And Mackenzie was like, no, 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 no. Enough of that shit. You are giving us our money. You're giving us more loans. I don't know how he managed to do it, but the British government was like, okay, we're going to continue giving you guys loans to continue with this land redistribution program. I'm not sure if it was guilt, but very clearly it's not guilt because the British have been holding on to a bunch of shit during their colonial escapades and they do not feel guilty about that at all. Um, so I don't know how he's able to do it. I think i don't I, I don't know i really want to know how he how, how how he got this done because between 1966 and 1970 the british government released another 18 million pounds in loans which i would imagine is roughly da, 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 to a, like maybe 500 million half a half a billion pounds in today's money um a lot of money um, now, Mackenzie's role wasn't just limited to land redistribution and settlement and agriculture. In 1965, Mackenzie was sent by Jomo Kenyatta to help create the East African community. He, Gisheru and Boya were part of the Phillips Commission that determined the structure of the EAC, a structure that is largely in place today. Mackenzie was also sent to negotiate a military defense agreement between Kenya and the British in the event the country went to war with Soviet-backed Somalia and Mackenzie delivered. I think it's called the Bamburi Understanding. It's from like 1974. Um, as a heads up, like all of this is going down during the Cold War. So you, Mackenzie was also necessary to like help Kenya keep its ties with the capitalistic West, where a lot more money was flowing compared to the uh, Soviet East. Um, now, Mackenzie was also regarded by both politicians at home and in the UK as representing European, specifically British, interests. The British High Commission considered him an influential friend at court. So in 1968, when Kenyatta had a stroke, the British reached out to Mackenzie to figure out what the fuck to do next, because Kenyatta was their guy. Odinga was not their guy. Kenyatta was the British guy. He was like, he, oh, they could not have picked out a better, a, a better leader than Kenyatta. Um, now, quoting from Poppy Cullen's paper and how Jomo Kenyatta's funeral was planned, and I quote, At three initial secret consultations, Mackenzie and the members of the British High Commission, including the High Commissioner, two first secretaries and a councillor, put together a list of questions to plan the president's funeral. This covered a range of specific details, including the timing and location of the funeral, the coffin transport, lying in state, guests and burial, end quote. Mackenzie recognized the importance of ensuring that Kenyatta had a dignified funeral, benefiting his status as founding father. If it was done well, his funeral would help the succession and keep Kenya stable. And this is something the British wanted as well. So the British helped him figure out the nuts and bolts of the funeral while Kenyatta was still alive, mind you. And while at the time, Jonjo was out there telling people that to consider the death of the president was an act of treason. So... A lot of things were happening at the same time, I think. Um, now, when time came to present the work, Mackenzie was told to present everything he had come up with with the British government as his own work that came from his own head. Um, he, like a savvy politician, was preparing for the worst while hoping for the best. That was what they told him to go say. Um, so Mackenzie took this work that he had done with the British High Commission and he presented it as his own to Njonjo, CS for Defence Mungai, and VP Moy. These four men met for five hours and went through the plan that Mackenzie had come up with, supposedly 
on his own, but we know he did it with the help of the British High Commission. At the end of this meeting, the four men decided to ask Britain for help. The only difference is, Jonjo, Mungai, and Moy genuinely believed that this was the first time they were asking the British for help. Mackenzie knew differently. Now, Jonjo, Mungai, and Mackenzie were also responsible for helping Moy ascend to the presidency upon Jomo's death in 1978. Mackenzie helped seal the deal for Moy's succession by drawing people to his side and convincing the British to back Moy over other contenders like Mungai. Mackenzie's name also pops up in the murder of J.M. Karaoke in 1975, where he relayed information back about the murder to the British. He said, and I quote um, from Daniel Branch's Kenya Between Hope and Despair, Bruce Mackenzie made it clear to the British High Commission that Karaoke's murder could be traced to Mbiu Koinange, Kenyatta's closest advisor and brother-in-law. Mackenzie told the British that Karaoke had been killed by some of the lower echelon Gatondo thugs on Koinange's instructions and with the president's approval. End quote. It just seems weird to go on talking about his life after that particularly damning re um, revelation, but I get we have to move on. Um, for future reference, if you didn't know, Kenya's early history as an independent state has a lot of assassinations. <laughs> a lot of them. Maybe I'll cover them next year if I decide to continue with this podcast, but we'll see. Now, in his personal life, Mackenzie used Kenyatta's used the Kenyatta years to amass incredible wealth and power, and he also used his influence to get away with murder in 1965. He was accused of killing Mukungu Hassan outside of his house in Mombasa, but Njonjo came to the rescue and shut that shit down. And then later, Justice Hancock's cleared him of the murder. In terms of politics, however, whenever something big was happening in Kenyan politics, Mackenzie was there, either helping move things along or passing information back to the British. Now, before we get into his spy activities, like you see how much he was involved in. He was involved in security negotiations with foreign powers. He was involved in foreign, like he was involved in foreign policy, implementing it, negotiating it, and directing it. He was involved in directing local policy. He was invested. He was invested in the our basic politics and like succession politics and planning Kenyatta's funeral and the day-to-day -day running of government. The, the amount of roles he played in Kenya's government is what led one Nigerian professor to call Mackenzie the invisible hand in Kenyan government. A lot of people disagreed with him, but a lot of people were like, yeah, it makes sense. And it just is quite interesting that as he was behaving as the invisible hand of Kenyan politics, one of the invisible hands of Kenyan politics, Mackenzie was also using his influence to act on behalf of the British as a spy. Um, rumor has it he was the MI he was MI6's premier spy in Kenya. Now here is where most of my research just kind of died, because um, a lot of what I have is hearsay, and I don't really have time to go, you know, looking through the National Archives for backed up facts. Um, especially because like the one person who would have known everything that Mackenzie did was Charles and John Joe, and the man died without ever publishing a single thought in his head so a lot of secrets died with him a lot it's just, so nah but Mackenzie's spy activities like i said coupled with the level of access and trust in the administration is why he was called the leader of the invisible government 
But not every single person was in agreement with this assessment. When he was the head of the public service, G.K. Karedi was interviewed in, in the 1990s about his experiences in government. And one of the first questions he was asked was about Bruce McKenzie. Someone asked him whether or not McKenzie was really a spy. And he replied, no, of course not. Absolutely not. It is a conspiracy theory peddled by international media and spy novelists. It is also important to note that at the time of questioning, G.K. Karedi still had connections to the Moy administration. And Moy is not a man who takes kindly to having his secrets revealed, even if these secrets were like 30 years old. Later, after Moy was booted from power and Karedi had retired from politics, the journalist returned to ask him the same question. Was Mackenzie a spy for the British? This time, Karedi said, oh yeah, of course, of course, he was. And Jomo's government knew about it. We knew that Mackenzie was a spy. Um, and we let it happen because it benefited us to have a back door into the British government. And I think that's the one thing that I didn't let you guys in on in my uh, assessment of the Mackenzie situation is that in as much as... Mackenzie being part of Kenyan government as a British spy gave the British an arm in Kenyan government and influence in Kenyan government. It also gave the Kenyan government a back door into British government and a way to inform and, 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 and fuck with their thinking. Um, and that has its benefits. So I can understand why they let it keep happening for this other reason. Now, in the book, British Intelligence and Covert Action, British First High Commissioner to Independent Kenya, Sir Malcolm MacDonald, is quoted as saying Mackenzie was recruited by the MI6 just before or immediately after Kenya's independence. From MI6, Mackenzie was then introduced to Mossad, which was the Israeli spying unit. So he was not only spying for the British, but he was also spying for the Israelis. And to complicate matters even further, some argued that Mackenzie was also a spy for the apartheid South Africans. But I could not confirm this last one. I just couldn't. Um, and I've only ever heard this repeated, not corroborated or substantiated. What I could confirm was that he spied for the Israelis and the British and then also played them against each other. In 1968, when the two were fighting over Kenya's military contracts, Mackenzie secretly invited Israelis to come and train the GSU, or the General Services Unit. After he did this, by the way, in 68, I mean, I should note, in 68, Mackenzie was not the Minister of Defense. He was not the Minister of Foreign Affairs. He was not the Minister of the Interior. He was still Minister for Agriculture and Livestock and Animal Husbandry. What the fuck was he doing inviting a foreign power to come in and negotiate and figure out Kenya's defense and military shit? He, he should not have been able to do that. But the fact that he was is an testament to the amount of power he wielded in the government. I just, I just thought I should re-emphasize that point because it, it can be very easily lost if you're not thinking about it. Anyway, 1968, Mackenzie invites Israelis to come train GSU. After he did this, he turned around to then warn the British Commonwealth Secretary that the Israelis had somehow managed to weasel their way into Kenya and that they should be stopped, even though he was the one responsible. He also used a spy, um, his role as a spy for the Israelis in 1976 during the Entebbe raid. So Idi Amin, in a massive boo-boo, fucked with Israel, and he was about to find out. Uh, Mackenzie allowed Israeli forces to use Kenya as a staging ground for the prep on the counterattack on Uganda, which really pissed off Idi Amin and may have led to Mackenzie's death. Now, before we get to his death, which was like 1976, I think, we need to back up to 1970. In 1970, Mackenzie resigned from office. People around Jomo Kenyatta felt that uh, Mackenzie's ties to the British were becoming just 
a bit too much on Paquito. On Paquito, a bit too much. Um, and they were like, could you kindly step aside? Just walk out. Please leave. Thank you so much. Leave your car. We leave you everything. We'll send your stuff home. We appreciate you kindly. And he left. Um, after resigning, Mackenzie built a damn empire. He was the director of Kenya Airways and he formed the Africa Liaison and Consulting Services Co. or Aliko. Moi, Kibaki, and Jonjo were all shareholders in Aliko, and Aliko is in is an investment vehicle, a way for politicians to invest in businesses with some anonymity. Most recently, in 2020, a group of investors from Aliko quietly exited the top shareholders list at CFC Stanvik Holdings, the company that owns Kenya's sixth largest bank, Stanvik. Apart from this movement, we don't know what Oliko owns. It's it, it's a secret. I tried. Um, weirdly enough, but perhaps it also makes sense. Like it's very difficult to find out who owns companies in Kenya. Both difficult and easy. Um, for reasons I will not get into right now. And Aliko, given what it is and given who its investors are, I would imagine they enjoy a level of secrecy protected by the government that other companies just simply don't. What we do know is that Aliko at some point owned shares in Barclays and CMC, but that was ages ago. Um, Aliko's directors are also associated with the property development firm Harry Holdings, which has a full or partial interest in Nairobi's College House, Colbert Gardens and Norfolk Towers. Mackenzie was also involved in the automotive industry. He also secured a Volkswagen dealership in Kenya and got a tender to supply Land Rovers to the government. As his businesses thrived, Mackenzie also kept his pulse on the political scene of East Africa. When Idi Amin came to power, Mackenzie was very quick to build bridges. Amin turned to Mackenzie to deliver radio equipment to Uganda's secret police from UK's piped telecommunications through its Kenyan distributors, which Mackenzie owned. This Mackenzie-owned company, which is called Wilkin Telecommunications Limited, also got the right or the tender to distribute Land Rovers um, to detect TV license dodgers. But really, those Land Rovers were for really shady uh, state secret bureau, Idi Amin, tortury shit. Um, so we're just going to move that aside. Um, business boomed. Um, and Mackenzie was in Uganda on a weekly basis. He was chatting up with Amin, having fun, helping him secure British investment, equipment, and more importantly, intelligence. Now, as Mackenzie was helping Amin, he was also double-crossing Amin. Um, in short, Mackenzie was a sneaky, sneaky snake. He was a slithering around. He was a snake. Um, in 1976, Amin fucked up by fucking with the Israelis. Um, now, this is where we go back to what we were saying about how Mackenzie allowed Israel to, or rather, got Jomo Kenyatta to allow Israel to use Kenya as a staging ground for the Entebbe raid. By the way, in 1976, as I said, Mackenzie was not a part of the government, and yet he had enough personal charisma, personal influence with the president of Kenya to convince him to do something that would have that would really fuck with the relationship with its neighbors really interesting right anyway um this might be why Mackenzie was murdered because he was able to you know he acted against Idi Amin's interests so in 1978 after a meeting with Amin Amin gave Mackenzie a present a lion's head trophy with a little extra sparkle a liquid bomb. Um, as Mackenzie was flying back to Kenya, the bomb was remotely detonated over the Ngong Hills. He and everyone on board died, Mackenzie included. Naturally, Kenya was like, bro, what the fuck? You killed one of my guys. To which, Regan to which Uganda responded, 
I have no idea what you mean. It wasn't us. That plane was under constant surveillance. How could it have been us? Why would we want to fuck with somebody who was very clearly a spy for the British? Why? Um, this was a conversation that was going on in public. In private, Njonjo had already sent a message to Amin being like, it's calm, bro. We know it wasn't you. Like, relax. I'm going to figure out who did this in private um kenya after this also sent samples of the explosive used to kill Mackenzie to the britain royal armament research and development establishment or r-a-r-d-e rared in london they produced a secret report which has never been released or i got the sense that it has never been released probably because the report concluded that Mackenzie had been murdered by a minister from central kenya who served under kenyatta and moy Mm. In 1979, CID, which is the Criminal Inspectorate Directorate or something, I don't know. It's 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 where Kenya gets investigates all its crimes. Released its own version of of the report, and in its version, the CID pointed the finger at Uganda. They were like, "It's you guys. You guys are the ones that planted a a bomb in in the in the gift that Amin gave to Mackenzie. It was you guys that remotely detonated it. It's all you." Um, later, when CID was asked, hey, where did you get this theory from? Um, they said that they got it from a South African journalist. Uh, and when this journalist was later interviewed by RARDE, the UK-based investigative things for bombs, um, when Raird investigated or interviewed the journalist um, who supplied CID with a theory and asked him, like, where did you get the story from? The journalist told them that John Joe and Deputy Parliament Speaker Fitz D'Souza and unnamed Israelis had told him that this is what is happening. So who do we believe? Qui bono is the question. Um, very clearly, Uganda did not benefit from Mackenzie's death. They had everything to lose. Um, Amin could not have benefited from the death because at the time, um, Mackenzie was rumored to be helping Amin arm his secret police in the military. And by the 1970s, the British had seized all trade with Uganda because they had expelled the Ugandan Indians. Therefore, Amin needed Mackenzie because he was a back channel with the UK. So maybe not Uganda. So maybe UK, maybe the UK and Kenya assassinated Mackenzie. I mean, two months before his death, the British High Commissioner um, to Kenya, Sir Stanley Fingland, said, and I quote, Mackenzie had discharged his main and outstanding contributions to Kenya in the past and that he was becoming anachronistic and perhaps a dangerous one in the present and future of Kenya. End quote. Put simply, he was saying that Mackenzie had outlived his usefulness and he was now a threat to the Kenyan state. I just don't know if High Commissioner Fingland was speaking on behalf of himself, representing Britain, or if the man had uh, read the Kenyan political climate and was just reading the tea leaves and was just aligning himself accordingly, like just basically saying, I, what else, what else could happen? Um, and either way, what we know right now is that Mackenzie was assassinated. He was assassinated in a plane explosion and that the British say that it was a minister from central Kenya. The Kenyans say it was the Ugandans and we don't know who to believe. Um, and with that, Mackenzie's life came to a spectacular, chunky and hopefully quick end. And boy, what a life it was. Um, this was how one of his uh, friends, Chapman Pierce Pincer, a journalist, described him in his obituary. And I quote, Mackenzie was a high-level politician, ambassador extraordinaire, intelligence agent, 
military advisor with close links to the British SAS, arms dealer, who had rendered important intelligence services to Britain. End quote. But, and I get why he would say all this, like, very clearly he's habitualizing uh, or um, um, mythologizing Mackenzie from the, from the perspective of the British, but as a Kenyan having looked through his history, I would like to give perhaps another obituary. Mackenzie was a man who both made sense and never made sense as part of our body politic. And it says a lot that he has not been, a, a presence like him has not featured in Kenyan politics since. Like I cannot point to a white person who is as prominent today as Mackenzie was in the early days of our colonies. Um, and, and I'm specifically talking about the white Kenyans who were born and raised in Africa and consider themselves to be African for better or worse. But ultimately, Mackenzie was a man that symbolized the difficult questions that needed to be answered in post-independent Africa about how one is able to forge forward in a world that is designed for them to fail. About how about the compromises and sacrifices that a country must make with its own consciousness, with its own sense of self, in order to survive and and preserve itself. And Mackenzie is emblematic of that conversation through and through. This is Bruce Mackenzie. Um, thank you so much for listening. Um, now I'm not sure if I'll be coming back to this podcast. Um, I saw a post on Reddit that was like, "Somebody, some of y'all don't need podcasts; you need therapy." And I was thinking that, like, perhaps I'm not using this podcast for what it's intended. Perhaps I'm using it as a as a way of for me to process my emotions and to channel some of my more anxious energy into something productive. Um, so I want to reevaluate my relationship with my podcast and figure out a way forward. So I may or may not come back. Um, if I do come back, you know, uh, I'll see you next year. If I don't, thank you so much for listening. I really hope you've been able to gain something from this podcast. I really hope it has enriched your life in some way. Um, and thank you so much for giving me your time of day. I, under I understand. I'm deeply aware of how valuable people's times are. And I'm so grateful that you decided to dedicate some of your time to me. Um, thank you so much. Have a lovely December. Um, and I really hope 2023 gets off to an amazing start. Bye, y'all. Thank you so much for listening to the Utajuo Hujui podcast. I really appreciate you giving me your time of day. I know that your time is very valuable. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Instagram at utajuahujui.pod. That is at U-T-A-J-U-A-H-U-J-U-I dot P-O-D on Instagram. Please don't forget to like, share, review, do all the nice things. I could really use the boost. Okay, enjoy the rest of your time on this planet. Goodbye.